Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and a very happy Rosh Hashanah uh, to our audience. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, key takeaways from Russia's recent International Military Technical Forum, Army 2021. You've got to love the name with Sam Bendet of the Center for Naval Analyses. But first, as he does at the start of almost every week, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners joins us to look ahead at the week and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, welcome back. Good to be here, Vago. I hope you uh, had a great uh, holiday weekend, and it's always a pleasure having you back on. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, and our naval coverage is sponsored by Fincantieri Marinette Marine and Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine sponsored our recent coverage of the Navy League Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. Byron, uh, thanks again uh, for joining us. Uh, great note, as always, uh, help setting up the week and, and what we should be paying attention to. Uh, your eye has been on the reconciliation uh, package. Obviously, Democrats trying to push uh, through not just the $1.2 trillion infrastructure measure, but their own $3.5 trillion uh, package uh, that includes some tectonic, uh, potentially tectonic changes in the tax code in order to generate revenue to pay for this uh, new uh, wave of uh, social spending. Walk us through what you think are the key issues and what they mean. Yeah, and again, Vago, as usually, I try and keep the focus on what really matters for defense. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's important to recognize these are committee markups. I think they're all due to the, to the House uh, Budget Committee by September 15th you know, with a goal of trying to get the House to pass a reconciliation bill uh, by September 27th. I think, you know, a starting setup, you know, my colleagues at, at Capital Alpha Partners say that that's a very aggressive schedule, <clears throat> just the way things tend to work. Um, but, you know, I think there are going to be signals about some issues that are that are important for defense contractors. One <clears throat> will be the status of the R&D tax credit. Um, under the 2017 tax cuts <clears throat> that were passed uh, by Congress under the Trump administration, one of the, the stipulations of that was to basically change uh, the R&D tax credit <clears throat> that has benefited contractors. Um, it was going to go from a single year write-off to not a write-off, a single year credit, but it would be amortized over five years. That kicks in in 2022. And it, it is a, a, a vehicle that has allowed these contractors to lower their tax expense, their effective tax rate from the 21% statutory corporate rate in the United States to, you know, most of these guys, now there are other components of this, but it varies by contractor. I, I laid that in my note, you know, at least based on what was in the 2019 and 2020 uh, SEC filings that they posted. But it, it's it's one option, one issue to watch. And then of course as well, what happens to the general corporate tax rate? The, the one other idea that was floated, and again, I don't know if this makes it into final legislation, but there was some references to possibly taxing share repurchases. Um, that's been an important uh, issue for contractors that have used uh, you know, their capital allocation to 
favor uh, fairly aggressive share repurchases in recent years. So that's that's another watch item. Again, you have to ask, how is all this going to end up um, in, in whatever is finally done uh, by the budget? But I think the R&D tax credit is probably the one that's, that's most germane, just because if current law isn't changed, that, that will change uh, beginning uh, in 2022. Every time governments have well-intentioned plans, whether it's through uh, steep tax cuts that do not uh, generate uh, neither growth nor the revenue, right? I mean, this whole notion of you cut taxes, uh, you know, revenue grows, uh, there's more prosperity, I tax it, it's actually better off. That's never happened that way. And equally, whenever uh, there's an effort to tax corporate profits or uh, CEO compensation or what have you, the ecosystem uh, adjusts uh, to that uh, ultimately, right? I mean, you you put too much pressure on bonuses, base salaries grow. You put pressure on uh, base salaries, bonuses grow. Um, you know, where are we going to end up? And do you, and, you know, and, and how does that affect the market's understanding and potentially have uh, of, of the defense and aerospace sector, right, um, that has uh, benefited considerably from share buybacks, uh, from bonuses, and rising senior level executive compensation? Well, I'll leave that to the, you know, sell side analysts, uh, including some of the, the people who were on your uh, business call, Vago. But, you know, I think I think the first thing is, okay, what's the impact on cash flows and reported earnings per share in 2022 and beyond? Uh, and you're right, you know, there are usually other angles, other aspects, <clears throat> um, you know, corporations are pretty creative from that matter. But, um, you know, this was a sector that arguably, because they had relatively high uh, tax rates um, prior to 2017, they, they really significantly benefited from the tax cuts uh, that were enacted in 2017. And so if you start to roll that back and reverse it, now I can't tell you how much of that contributed to the stock performance of this sector over that time period. But um, you know, for people who look at free cash flow measures or look at earnings per share, metrics, um, it, it, you know, you take your, your effective tax rate from, you know, something in the thirties down to 21% or the statutory rate, um, you know, that, that's, that's a pretty significant change. And again, you know, I, I think in contrast to maybe what a lot of the management's talked about, um, I think if you really parse how that incremental cash flow where, where it went to, a lot of it went to dividends and share buybacks. It did not all go to higher employee salaries, higher employee retraining or training um, and, and, and internal investment. I want to uh, ask you about the broader European drive uh, to increase uh, sovereignty uh, or, or, or strategic autonomy, as, as the language goes. Joe Burrell, uh, the EU foreign minister, uh, wrote uh, to uh, that effect that it's time for Europe to stand on its own two feet. This in the wake of uh, President Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan, this, this sense that the United States was again being unilateralist, that it doesn't matter if, it, if the president is George Bush or Barack Obama or Donald Trump. Uh, or Joe Biden, the United States will act unilaterally in its interest. That's the purview of every great power. Although I think the last two administrations communicated pretty clearly to our allies and partners that we intend intended to leave. Although I think the collapse was a little bit faster than some people clearly, you know, miscalculation in some governments to think 
that the Afghan government would hold out longer and, and um, uh, consequently countries would have more time to evacuate their personnel. We're, as we're having this conversation, the Taliban uh, has formed an acting uh, government that includes some people that uh, the, the United States hounded for, I think, uh, a couple of, uh, uh, for, for many years. Talk to us about this new autonomy drive and what you think it means uh, to the transatlantic defense and aerospace ecosystem. Look, it's, it's almost too soon to tell. Uh, obviously, you know, if there really is a consensus in Europe that the U.S. is not a reliable partner anymore, you would expect them to kind of put money where their mouth is, and they'd increase their defense spending. Uh, they they not necessarily increase their spending, but you'd see them take more concrete steps to fill in some of the capacities and capabilities that the U.S. provides the NATO alliance. Um, and if you're, if you're really worried about uh, countries like Afghanistan or Libya or, or anywhere else in the world where um, you know, you're going to need potentially a large ground presence, you'd most certainly expect European countries to start increasing the size of their ground forces. And there, there's just no evidence of that right now. And um, you know, I, I think quite bluntly, Europe could invoke some backlash on this if they're if they're quite happy to sit in the in the you know the the bleacher seats and and boo um, when in fact you know they've been on the field as well too and on a per capita basis Europe still spends significantly less than the U.S. does on defense so we we could get a boomerang back into these burden sharing debates which I think would be frankly, helpful in some ways. Because uh, again, you know, if if you don't like what what a U.S. Um, policy practices are, uh, you know, then you're going to have to step in and, and do some more of it yourself. And that's that's not a debate that I see Europe having with its uh, with, with its populations. From a historical perspective, do you actually think the United States is being any more unilateral nor dismissive of Europe than it's historically been? Um, I mean, ultimately, the United States has been engaged in, in Europe uh, since World War II. Uh, and ever since then, the United States has been somewhat a unilateralist leader in that. I mean, you could look at what Dwight Eisenhower did in the Suez crisis, for example, as being the ultimate power play move uh, to um you know, undermine uh, its its allies uh, from from doing something that it didn't want done. Um, ultimately, is this any different than any other uh, time? And why is this time different? And is it going to manifest itself in greater spending uh, for defense, especially when there is a somewhat divided view about what sort of risk Russia constitutes uh, to Europe? Well, I mean, the irony is. You know, you have both the Senate and House Armed Services Committees coming out, adding $25 billion to the DOD budget request. Uh, I think, you know, that in and of itself is kind of a signal to Europe as much as, as they may criticize U.S. policy. You know, the U.S. is still spending spending on defense and actually there's there's no... There's no sign of that slackening anytime soon. Now, again, a lot of that is directed towards Asia Pacific initiatives. Although, quite frankly, you know, if you look at some of the legacy programs that were were topped up, uh, Doug Zakheim wrote a, a good article, and I guess it was the Hill on this. You know, 
are you really pushing that ball forward? I don't think the U.S. is, I mean, I mean, clearly there were some trends that have been underway. Uh, you know, the U.S. kind of took a backseat in Libya. We weren't going to put ground troops on the ground. I, I think this, this kind of gets maybe to a broader question of, um, you know, we, we kind of act spasmodically at times. Uh, think about, you mentioned Suez, but I also think about the Lebanon uh, intervention. You know, when President Reagan sent in the Marines, uh, to, to Beirut, and that had some very unfortunate consequences. And then we withdrawal, although, you know, there were, if I recall, joint airstrikes uh, or not joint, but but France was very active in in parts of that campaign as well too. Um, so no, I don't I don't think that I think there's just a simple recognition that, and that this came, you know, screaming back to everybody with Afghanistan that, you know any country's capacity to um, build or reshape a country of 36, 40 million people, uh, you know, 70% of them who live in, uh, in rural areas, 90% of whom have incomes below the poverty line. Uh, I'm reading um, the, the Whitlock book on the Afghanistan papers and started to write something that, you know, in my career, you know, more than 50% of it, the U.S. has been engaged in Afghanistan. Uh, and, but the Whitlock book is really just a fascinating reminder of how, how much we spent uh, in blood and treasure and um, how, uh, you know, I, I think on sober reflection, you know, we're not going to do this again for a while, uh, and that raises the obvious question about, okay, if we're not going to do it, who is? And uh, it's not like they're all of a sudden, you know, states are going to stop failing. States are going to stop harboring uh, nefarious groups. Uh, states are going to stop meddling in the affairs of other countries. So um, it kind of circles back, Vago, I, I, if we're not going to do it, then is Europe going to step up to the plate and, and fill us in? And I, I, if Libya is a good case in point, I don't, I don't see that at all. Uh, in, in, indeed, and I know that some of these conversations uh, are happening at an EU level about whether their goals uh, to generate the kind of forces uh, that have become bumper stickers are, are actually feasible. We, we've got less than a minute left. Talk to us a little bit about the, the US Army air defense comments that came out from a recent conference that uh, drew your attention and, and should, should focus everybody's minds on what the future uh, of air defenses uh, might be and, and the role of legacy platforms in that future? Well, no, it was reported by Inside Defense. Uh, and I think it was interesting. There was an Army's fire conference on the 31st of August at Fort Sill. And they picked up a comment that was made by um, uh, a Brigadier General Gibson about <clears throat> retiring older systems, including Patriot and Stinger. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting because that's the first time I've heard anybody in the Army express lack of confidence in, in the Patriot system. And I, I'm just curious, you know, <clears throat> where does that go? What does it mean? Is Patriot, uh, you know, it's not exactly a mobile system once it's set up. You can certainly move it around by air and, and by, by land. But, um, <clears throat> you know, its ability, when, once you've set up that battery, um, it's a relatively fixed position. So was he implying that 
you know, when you layer in hypersonic strike or, you know, the enhanced surveillance capabilities that adversaries are likely to have um, in, in the future, you know, that this is now becoming a, a more vulnerable system. It, it's kind of a to be determined comment. And so we don't really know what the army's thinking is behind this, but it's, it is curious given the, um, you know, the new radar contract that was awarded for Patriot to Raytheon Technologies in 2019, you know, the fact that this was just selected by Switzerland in an international campaign, and it's also been kind of the backbone of air defense networks and a number of other European countries have uh, placed confidence in, um, you know, mo most recently Poland, Sweden, and Romania. So um, just, I think right now it's a, it's more of a question mark than a, a, a question mark with an exclamation point too. <laughs> uh, Byron, thanks very much. It's always a pleasure uh, having you on. And and very uh, briefly, um, what are the events you're paying attention to over the course of this week that we should be paying attention to as well? Um, what, as I said, you know, kind of what comes out of out of the House and the reconciliation package. There, there are just a bunch of events on 9/11, counterterrorism, <clears throat> and Afghanistan. Um, and so I think you know for the latter. Kind of the interesting thing, particularly to retrospectives, is is so what does this mean going forward? Uh, I know West Point um, is actually doing a, a kind of irregular warfare counterterrorism uh, virtual conference, I believe, on Friday uh, the 10th. So, you know, what are people thinking about? What's the future going to be? And, and are there opportunities and maybe risks that defense contractors are going to be thinking about? Byron, thanks very much again. Really appreciate it as always. You got it. Thanks, Fago. And a word from our sponsors, General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. And joining us now is Sam Bendet, one of the able members of the Russia team at the Center for Naval Analyses. He is also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security Think Tank. Sam, pleasure as always to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Great to be back, Vago. Absolute uh, pleasure. I should wish you a happy new year. Uh, and thanks very much for joining us uh, today. Uh, Russia recently convened uh, the Army 2021 show uh, that uh, was held as scheduled uh, late last month, Delta or, or not. Uh, what were the key takeaways from this show? Uh, obviously, the uh, International Military Technical Forum Army 2021, uh, which I absolutely love that phrase, is about uh, both uh, Russia messaging in terms of capabilities it's developing. It's also about international cooperation and partnership. And I want to talk to you about that, uh, as well as uh, some unmanned uh, systems that debuted uh, as well. But give us sort of your overall take on what uh, the most important developments from this show were. Well, this forum is also uh, including an international military competition. So uh, in Russia and in other countries around the world, Russian teams competed with friendly and allied nations in tank biathlons and in military competitions that basically tested the quality of military preparedness for soldiers, for equipment, for military systems. So I think the key takeaway is that this forum and its associated activities are growing. They are adding more and more um, activities. They're adding more technologies. They're adding more competitions. Uh, other countries are keen to participate and essentially test their best against Russia's best. And so this forum has truly become a global platform from which Russia telegraphs and communicates its military capabilities and its military weapons developments. 
And each year, the number of participants appears to grow. And so this year was the first major event um, after last year's COVID that placed some restrictions on Army 2020. And so for Army 2021, uh, there were um, hundreds of thousands of visitors. There were um, over a thousand different uh, systems presented, uh, again, multiple nations and their delegations to communicate with the Russian Ministry of Defense to check out Russian military industrial um, achievements and products. And um, I think going forward, this forum is definitely going to grow. This year, apart from uh, the regular sort of military technologies exhibited, there were new armored vehicles presented, uh, especially the um, K4386 armored vehicle, which in many ways was based on Russia's experience in Syria. Uh, So Russia is expanding its lineup of ground vehicles. It's expanding its lineup of military systems that are basically uh, used with such ground and and other systems as well. Well, What's interesting about this forum, as in years past, is the growing role of high-tech in Russian military sector in general. And so throughout the Army 2021 Expo, there were roundtables, public and classified discussions devoted to the application of artificial intelligence in the military. Uh, And so for seven days, there were discussion amongst the MOD officials, government officials, industry officials, end users, academia, on the role and importance of artificial intelligence and other uh, high technologies for the Russian defense sector and for the global sort of um, um, military development going forward. Um, let me ask you, let me uh, push you a little bit on the technology front, right? I mean, Russia is still under an enormous degree of sanctions uh, over uh, its Ukraine invasion in 2014. And Russia has been focusing on developing and accelerating indigenous technology development. You know, there are those who say that the more we've sanctioned Russia on IT and cyber technology, the better Russian IT and cyber uh, has become within the confines of their own uh, ecosystem. Um how effective are Western embargoes on constraining Russia's ability to develop cutting edge technology for its military? Well, you're absolutely right to point out that Russian military sector today writ large is engaged in a massive import substitution drive to wean itself off software and hardware that was imported from the West for many um, military technologies and systems. But just as many military technologies and systems were not actually using imported components. So while the sanctions have definitely put a dent on the development of some military systems, it did not really affect to a large extent the larger sort of development and fielding of um, new armored vehicles, tanks, uh, naval vessels, and even aircraft. So it's a bit of a mixed result. It absolutely impacted some of the more high-tech development, but it did not impact the larger sort of trend in fielding new systems and replacing the old Soviet legacy systems. Um, let me take you uh, uh, to a combat, to Unmanned, uh, which is uh, your 
uh, Forte, one of the things that you focus on on the team there is you specialize on Russian unmanned developments. And, and Russia has been very, very ambitious, tested obviously some systems uh, in Syria, as we saw. Uh, and the Russians have a boldness to operational testing, which uh, is admirable, right? Everything is, is tuned for speed. Uh, and if there's a conflict somewhere and they can introduce a capability, they're doing it uh, to be able to get real world lessons and move very uh, quickly. Uh, one of those, uh, let, let's talk on the air and on the ground side and what you saw new and interesting and at what point these air and ground systems pose uh, will pose problems for the NATO alliance. There is a concern that some of these game-changing capabilities may change the power balance, but at this point, they're still being fielded in, in sort of boutique cap capacities. And I wanted to sort of get your sense as to whether or not any of this stuff is, is militarily needle-moving, and if so, when it becomes needle-moving. Well, you're right in um, expressing a certain level of concern um, for NATO forces, but I think that concern uh, will be felt in the near future. Right now, as you mentioned, some of these capabilities are really kind of one-off capabilities. There are few samples that are flying or being tested. So we're looking at mass capacity years from now. But concurrent with that, we've also seen the MOD's Ministry of Defense's effort to push the schedules basically to the left. Uh, there've been a lot of delays for some of the key unmanned uh, aerial vehicles um, that Russia is testing today. And so the MOD is now pushing the defense industrial sector, the companies that manufacture these vehicles to test and field them much faster so that they're capable and ready for inclusion in Russian military services today and not years from now. So for example, uh, one of the big announcements at the Army 2021 was that the Altius long range high altitude combat and ISR drone could be acquired as early as later this year. There was also announcement that a Hotnik unmanned combat aerial vehicle may be acquired as early as 2022 instead of 2024. And another interesting and key announcement was uh, that the Kronstadt uh, enterprise, which has built Russia's only functioning Orion combat UAV, which has a range of approximately 250 kilometers, is also rushing the development of the um, serious long-range combat UAV that could potentially uh, enter um, production as early as 2023, instead of a few years later, as was originally um, announced. And so Russian Ministry of Defense recognizes that the current capability that it has with short-range ISRs has proven itself successful. But what Russia really needs today, according to the MOD, is the long-range combat capacity, the likes um, of Global Hawks and Reapers and, and CH-4s and CH-5s that United States and China are flying and building. This is what Russia needs today. And so MOD is pushing the defense industrial sector to start testing and fielding the systems much faster. So in a few years from now, if current trends hold true, if there are no significant changes to the supply lines, if there's no major crises around the world, <clears throat> excuse me, if Russian um, import substitution drive proves actually successful, then we can start seeing the mass um, <clears throat> application and introduction of all these Altius or Hotnik and possibly even Sirius and other drones in the military. And that's when things will start changing because these long range drones can act as air defense penetrators. 
They right. can be equipped with electronic warfare components and systems that can affect ground-based and air-based NATO assets. Um, they could act as loyal wingmen to piloted aircraft. And MOD has been talking for a long time uh, about using such drones in groups and in swarms. Uh, this is something that they have discussed for years, and they're pushing their domestic defense um, companies to actually field technologies that would enable multiple types of drones to operate in groups and swarms as sort of a mission multiplier. So I think that's one of the biggest announcements and some of the biggest takeaways when it comes to UAVs. Russia has never been short on being a, a military innovator and, and a breakthrough thinker, right? I mean, a lot of operational concepts, uh, even fusion warfare is something which the Russians have been pioneering and working to try to achieve. Uh, and we're increasingly uh, adopting some of these uh, approaches. On the other hand, every once in a while, the Russians are a little bit too far ahead of themselves and things like a chronoplan and so many other really potentially breakthrough systems don't move ahead, but they don't move ahead in part because Russia actually builds this stuff and tests it and finds out that, it, that it's not going to work. What are things that Washington and Western governments need to be doing starting now to prepare uh, to insulate themselves from the kind of future that Russia is developing? So I, I think Russia is actually mirror imaging a lot of American developments. And so in many ways, Russia is trying to match what the United States is doing, but to the extent of their own capabilities. Um, so that involves, for example, drone swarm development, loyal wingman um, development for a UAV and, and a manned aircraft and many others. The United States has been talking a lot about um, urban warfare and um, preparing both for urban and subterranean warfare. And actually, one of the other major announcements at the Army 2021 was that the MOD wants to launch the production for Sturm heavy ground um, combat UGV that is specifically designed for urban warfare and is based on a T-72 tank. So again, Russians are trying to match a lot that's happening in the West, but they're kind of putting their own spin on it within their own capabilities. Uh, electronic warfare has emerged as a very significant element in any Russian military discussion of today and future combat. And so we're talking systems, concepts, drills and exercises, mounting EW systems on ground, naval, aerial and other systems, both manned and unmanned. And so I think United States should be preparing for increased EW capability in the Russian military that isn't just tied to existing ground-based systems, right. which are mostly on vehicles, but for example, EW systems that can now function on multiple types of drones and UAVs, multiple types of unmanned ground vehicles that are going to be fielded in the near future. Russian military is also pushing its defense industrial sector to develop uh, unmanned underwater and surface vehicles. And there've been multiple announcements at Army 2020 about sort of new uh, UUVs and USVs that can potentially function in groups. And so Russia is pushing its, um, its capabilities. It is trying to see uh, what it can field right now and test that capability right now. So there's a lot of discussion about what they can do today and kind of go forward based on what they're capable of right now. So for example, this involves the discussion of using artificial intelligence in the military. So this isn't kind of a pie in the sky discussion. Uh, a lot of uh, Russian R&D institutions are actually looking at today's capabilities and what AI can accomplish today so that 
further development can be based on realistic scenarios. And part of that realistic scenario is going to be Russia's involvement in Syria. Defense Minister Shoigu once again announced that Russia tested over 300 different types of weapon systems in Syria. It is a major uh, testing ground for Russian military development. It is highly likely that new systems like unmanned aerial vehicles, unmanned ground vehicles, maritime systems will be tested in Syria uh, once they're actually ready for that type of combat. So uh, these are the things I think that the United States should be aware of. Again, it isn't that Russia is surging ahead. It is that Russia is trying to think how they can use existing capabilities and how they can build up strength without overly exerting themselves trying to match United States military budgets or multitude of uh, U.S. military developments and achievements. And uh, we've got about 30 seconds left. Uh, this is about international uh, partnerships and agreements. Saudi Arabia is one of the nations that struck an agreement uh, with uh, Russia. What did you find most interesting and what does this tell us uh, about the kind of security partner Russia is becoming? Uh, you know, there is a question uh, that vis-a-vis the United States, some U.S. allies and partners may be looking to diversify their sources of, of supply over uh, questions and concerns about Washington. Some of these questions with Saudi Arabia date to the Khashoggi uh, incident and before to the Yemen war. Uh, obviously, if you're uh, in Riyadh, you want to try to uh, play all sides off of another in order to advance your interests. Uh, that's not new. How should we, re- re- we be regarding some of these international partnership agreements we saw uh, uh, take place at Army 2021? Well, I think at Army 2021, as at at previous forums and and going uh, into the future at other forums, Russian MOD and the Russian government will try to communicate that there's a tremendous interest in its military systems from international customers, and not just in legacy systems like armored vehicles or missiles, something that have been uh, sort of in the talks before, but for example, in new systems that Russia itself has only started to acquire, like the UAVs. And so it announced that multiple, um, uh, multiple countries are looking for uh, acquiring and purchasing certain Russian military weapons and systems. And uh, obviously, um, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia would be a very interesting customer for Russian military systems. But we also have to remember that um, a lot of the countries looking at Russian systems also have a very solid partnership with the United States and are... Um, are happy uh, to acquire more high-tech and advanced American weapons. I think for many countries looking at acquiring Russian systems, it's an issue of cost. It's an issue of how these weapons are going to be used. And um, it's also an issue of um, political partnership. And I've said many times before, countries that buy weapons from Russia aren't just buying technology. They're actually also acquiring a certain level of of political connections that can serve them um, in, the, in the future. And so Russia is keen to expand its, um, its military capabilities. It's keen to expand uh, and, uh, its entry into new arms export markets. It wants to expand its presence and footprint, for example, in the global UAV export market, where there's an uphill battle against entrenched um, um, uh, world leaders like United States and China and other countries. So we're going to see a lot of announcements. We're going to see a lot of talks. It doesn't mean a lot of these talks and announcements are going to come to a physical fruition. It doesn't mean that um, sometimes years from now, these discussions will result in an actual transfer of military technology from Russia 
to another country like the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So we'll have to wait and see and actually um, and actually determine what uh, Saudi Arabia wants from Russia, what Russia wants from Saudi Arabia, and what other countries that have expressed interest in Russian military technology are actually looking for. Sam, thanks very much for joining us as always. Really appreciate it. Glad to be here and thanks for having me again. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.